Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. Uh, women and gender health is under-researched, it's underfunded, it's under-prioritized. So it's no surprise that that would trickle specifically to perinatal mental health. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Mental health conditions such as mood and anxiety disorders are diagnosed in one of every five pregnant or postpartum people. Yet, despite this high burden of morbidity, mortality, and economic cost, perinatal mental illness is poorly addressed by the current U.S. healthcare system. Perinatal mental health, what we know about it, and what policy options exist to improve it, is the topic of today's health policy. Now, the October issue of Health Affairs features a large collection of articles on this topic. Those papers discuss several dimensions of perinatal mental health, including the health and economic costs of poor perinatal mental health, the relationship between mental health and physical health, and the role of race and racism in how our nation approaches mental illness among birthing people. Today, I'm speaking with Jennifer Moore, founding executive director of the Institute for Medicaid Innovation, who was the advisor for the issue. She also published with co-authors the overview paper in the issue. In that paper, she and her co-authors described the prevalence of perinatal mental health conditions, the implications of those conditions, associated barriers to screening, diagnosis, and treatment, and forms of bias associated with mental health conditions. They note, for example, that the estimated $14 billion per year cost associated with untreated mental health conditions is likely an underestimate. And they present six policy opportunities to improve prevention, diagnosis, and treatment, all topics we'll cover in today's discussion. Now, this is typically where I'd say, Dr. Moore, welcome to the program. I wonder, with your permission, of course, can I call you Jennifer since we are, after all, married? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, then, Jennifer, welcome to the program. Let's talk about perinatal mental health. When we say perinatal mental health, whose health and what kind of conditions are we talking about? So when we're talking about perinatal mental health, we're referring to the period during pregnancy and then the postpartum period. If we're getting really technical, perinatal actually means and begins at five months into the pregnancy and ends about a month after. But most individuals, when they use the term perinatal, are really encompassing the full term of pregnancy and up to a year postpartum. And what kinds of health conditions fall within the mental health category? So when we talk about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, which is the focus of this theme issue, it really is centered around depression, both in the prenatal period and postpartum period. Um, and then anxieties. It would exclude serious mental illness like schizophrenia. And and why do we exclude those? Um, It's its own separate category of uh, mental health conditions. So these are serious, but not sort of the most serious persistent mental health illnesses. Is that fair? It's hard, right, to to label one group as serious and the other not. Um, I think when you think about serious mental illnesses, you're considering um, abilities to work, ability to maintain normal, healthy functions, 
Um, oftentimes it involves uh, medication management, intensive behavioral health services, whereas in the group of perineal mood and anxiety disorders, not everyone necessarily is going to be prescribed medications. Um, and oftentimes people are able to work and, and maintain a normal living. I, and I should be clear, I didn't mean in any way to suggest that these aren't serious. I was just trying to differentiate between, as you say, the uh, the, the schizophrenia and others that other conditions that people maybe associate with uh, traditional mental health, not in the context of of the perinatal period. Yeah, I think it really comes up with uh, in terms of Medicaid for for payment purposes is how how they look at delineating uh, the two. But they're regardless, they're all important and really serious to take um, uh, a look at and. Some listeners may wonder why we're not just calling this maternal mental health. Can you explain the use of the broader term? Absolutely. So the shift towards perinatal from maternal health is to acknowledge and recognize that not everyone identifies as being a mother. Not everyone identifies as being female who is pregnant um, during this period. And so perinatal allows for uh, gender inclusivity and affirms that 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 language too. That's very helpful. So let's start getting into sort of the evidence here, which is what you capture in your overview paper. Um, just at the highest level, what are the negative consequences associated with uh, perinatal mel- mental illness? What are those consequences for the person with the illness, the children, and the families? And the health of the community as a whole. Absolutely. So I think the biggest area to dispel is that often individuals assume that perinatal mental health issues only occur in the postpartum period. Oftentimes we think of postpartum depression as the only event that that we're focused on. But actually, um, during the prenatal period, anxiety and depression can have an impact. It can increase the risk of preeclampsia, cesarean birth, neonatal intensive care, admissions, uh, preterm birth, low birth weight, and and so on. In the postpartum period, we see uh, cognitive and emotional complications that impact infant attachment, barriers around uh, poor cognition. We also see psychological and development disturbances in infants and children and adolescents that carry throughout their their childhood and presumably into their their adulthood uh, life. With untreated uh, anxiety and depression, uh, we often see challenges related to ability to maintain work. Um, The stress and anxiety associated with that can be overwhelming for a pregnant individual and even in the the postpartum period. And obviously that impacts family dynamics, it impacts communities, and it's really important to elevate as an important element of the diagnosis and and treatment for pregnant and birthing individuals. Here's what I kind of don't get. The evidence of the negative effects of untreated perinatal mental illness seem very profound and strong and large, um, but it doesn't sound like we're doing a really good job in this area. So what's going on? What What's happening when, when I think of mental illness or other illnesses? We think of screening, diagnosis, treatment. Uh, 
what's going on in these areas and why are we falling so short? So, I mean, fundamentally, uh, women and gender health is under-researched, it's underfunded, it's under-prioritized. So it's no surprise that that would trickle specifically to perinatal mental health. What we're seeing in this space is underdiagnosis. What we're seeing in this space is inaccurate diagnosis due to tools that aren't culturally congruent. We, we have a huge deficit in this area, and we have an insufficient workforce. Um, as I was interviewing a, a Medicaid enrollee recently and a clinician who provides care to a Medicaid population in the D.C. area, she shared that only one um, expert in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders is available for the Medicaid population in, in the D.C. area. And that's not unusual uh, for many cities across the U.S. D.C. is a major, major city, and yet we're seeing a, a deficiency in, in the workforce. So it, it, there's so many areas to, to touch upon um, in this area, but I really feel like fundamentally the under-prioritization of, of women and gender health is a huge issue in this country that has implications for a lot of topics, including perinatal um, mental health. Now, there's been growing reporting of particularly the racial gap in maternal mortality. Is the move to pay more attention to maternal mortality spilling over to lead to more attention to mental health, or is that viewed primarily as sort of a physical health with its in its own sort of physical health silo? Yeah, well, definitely the increased awareness around maternal mortality and morbidity in the country, specifically around racial and ethnic disparities, is shining a light on a lot of different topics, including perinatal um, mental health. You're seeing uh, members of Congress introducing legislation, including um, Momnibus, uh, which looks at the role of uh, perinatal mental health in relation to maternal mortality and morbidity and thinking about strategies to address that. Of course, in my world where I focus predominantly on Medicaid, there's there's inherent challenges with behavioral health being carved out from uh, physical health, which sets up a whole slew of trickle-down effects in terms of providing comprehensive evidence-based care to a pregnant individual who is enrolled in, in Medicaid. So you, you see this just being compounded by the policies that are in place that set up barriers for access and coverage. But certainly there is a movement, there is increased awareness, whether or not uh, policymakers act is, is still to be seen. You have clinical training, and as you know, I don't. Do we have good screening tools? Do we have good diagnostics? Is the science there and we're not using it? Or is the science inadequate or maybe some of each? It's it's everything. And again, it goes back to the, the under-prioritization and funding of women and gender health uh, topics. Specifically drilling into perinatal mental health, you'll notice that there's a dearth of uh, quality measures to even get around uh, what is what is happening in this space in a quantitative way that we can measure and track and evaluate the impact of of interventions. Um, NCQA has created a perinatal depression measure that they are piloting right now, but it is striking to me that in 2021 
this is a, a new measure and not something that's been in place for, for a long time. In terms of the diagnostic tools, I would say the screening tools um, are ripe for investment, for improving um, their ability to capture the cultural nuances um, to better um, assess, diagnose, and determine the best treatment um, trajectory for, for individuals, especially those who represent uh, racial and ethnic groups that we're seeing the greatest amount of disparities. Um, and I know that there's work being done by Black Mamas Matter Alliance trying to get at this issue of insufficient quality measures, but also tools that are geared towards white individuals who predominantly have commercial insurance without the additional social needs that that come into that play. Well, we've painted a pretty dark picture here, but I know in your paper you have suggestions and ideas for how we could do better. I'm eager to get those into the conversation. We'll do that after we take a short break. Enjoying the show? Make sure to subscribe to Health Affairs Today to catch a daily roundup of news, analysis, and commentary. Topics range from federal and state health policies to the latest on health inequities. And it's free. Head to www.healthaffairs.org and click newsletter sign up in the menu to join the premier health policy community. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer Moore about perinatal mental health. Before the break, we were talking about major shortcomings in how we approach this topic, but happily, there are suggestions and proposed legislation and resources and ideas for how to do better. And I'd like to turn to those now. You have a series of policy ideas in your paper about improving perinatal mental health. Um, We'll pick up one or two of them, but I hope you'll weave in as many as you like. Let's just start with the model of care. This is something you pay significant attention to, how care is provided, how it's accessed, how it's organized. What is it that we're missing and what are the ideas for doing better? Yeah, so our current model of care, um, which is oftentimes referred to the medical model, does not involve community-based or community-centered care, of which is evidence-based and shows to be of of high value. There needs to be a dramatic shift in this country to truly address maternal mortality and morbidity. And there's not a single solution, but if we center around community-based models I do believe that we will begin to see changes in outcomes and especially for um, those who are disproportionately affected, whether it's uh, based on income level or race, ethnicity. When we compare our birth outcomes in the United States to countries of similar economic status, the major factor that raises up that sh- that demonstrates the difference between their model and our model is that they center their perinatal health around a community model and that includes midwives that includes doulas perinatal community health workers freestanding birth centers 
Whereas in the U.S., it's centered around OBGYNs and hospital-based care. So if we're able to pivot and make that move, I do believe in this country we could dramatically shift outcomes, but it does take policy changes to remove barriers so that this model can uh, take place. Now, you mentioned at the outset, you're the founding executive director of the Institute for Medicaid Innovation. You mentioned the dominant role Medicaid plays for this population. Uh, Say a little bit more about that and what you think Medicaid could do to play its part in addressing this. Absolutely. So when we think about Medicaid coverage of pregnancy, we know that approximately 50% of all births are covered by this really critical safety net program. However, in some states, that's as high as 71%. So Medicaid does play a really critical role in moving the needle in this space and can be a leader in uh, addressing our, our poor birth outcomes in this country. Some real easy ways for Medicaid, whether it's at the state level or federal level, to um, be responsive to the needs of pregnant and birthing individuals and postpartum um, individuals um, is to remove barriers associated with access to midwives and doulas and perinatal community health workers, establishing a payment system um, that allows them to um, provide this level of care and not worry about payer mix. Currently, a lot of midwives and doulas and perinatal community health workers limit the number of Medicaid enrollees in their services because the payment is so low that they're not able to sustain the infrastructure of their programs. And so oftentimes they're dependent on grants to supplement, but those grants are episodic and are not sustainable. So you have an entire population of Medicaid enrollees who are simply not getting access and coverage to this really critical um, service. It's limited to those oftentimes with employer-based insurance coverage, um, white individuals, and and those um, who can pay out of pocket if their commercial insurance is is not willing to cover it. Other opportunities in Medicaid, um, carving out behavioral health from the physical health Um, is a huge barrier to ensuring continuity of care for a Medicaid enrollee. We know during the prenatal visit or postpartum visit, if we identify a behavioral health need, they're less likely to access those services if it's not within the same system where they're co-located. And at the FQHC in D.C., where I have affiliation with, Um, It's same-day appointment. So if we identify a behavioral health need at that uh, physical care appointment, we can move them over into that behavioral health appointment same day. Uh, But again, um, it's grant-funded. And and so that is what allows that system to um, exist. And certainly there's a need uh, for Medicaid policies to, to allow that in a more broad way that is not dependent on on grant funding. And then I would say sort of the last item specifically to Medicaid, in addition to Medicaid expansion or extension, uh, however you want to define it, is thinking about the telehealth policies that were enacted during the pandemic. The federal government allowed for greater flexibilities with telehealth coverage in the Medicaid population due to the pandemic. These policies are not permanent, 
and a great opportunity for Congress and CMS uh, would be to and state Medicaid agencies would be to sustain these uh, telehealth flexibilities beyond the pandemic. We've seen it work. Uh, Medicaid enrollees like it, especially those who are seeking behavioral health services. And there's an opportunity to sustain those policies uh, beyond the life of the pandemic. Now, I want to weave together a couple of the topics you've brought up and some that are in papers in the issue. Uh, you mentioned community-based efforts, and a couple of the papers really reference that one of the roots of the racial disparities in this area is the deficit model around mental health, this notion that sort of something's wrong with you and we're going to diagnose you and then we're going to treat you as opposed to tying you to the strengths that you have, which often come from the community, the, the support network that you have. When that's described to me, it sounds, and it's presented often sort of as a conceptual shift or a change in attitude, but is there a policy element here as well? Is there something public policy could either do to reflect or lead this change uh, so that when we're trying to address the problem, we're not just stuck in this, oh, here's a diagnosis, here's something to fix it. Absolutely. I mean, part of that is re removing the stigma and bias around mental health and not thinking of it as a disease or a problem. Mental health also encompasses well-being. And oftentimes, we we don't encompass that. We don't we don't include that in, in our thinking about that. Um, having access to let's say doula support during uh, before, during, and after your pregnancy has a positive impact on your health and well being, especially your mental health. You have a support person. You have someone who's going to help you through this experience. You have someone who's going to connect you to the community services that you need. That's positive mental health. And we need to invest in, in that health and well-being. Some people call it preventive care. Whatever, whatever terminology you want to use, it is a shift away from only focusing on the disease burden or diagnosis and thinking of it in a framework, a public health framework of prevention and, and, and well-being for, for that individual and family, extending to the family also. You know, that reminds me, you mentioned in the paper broader support for families, which would get at economic well-being and, and stability, things that are not direct treatment for a mental illness, but certainly contribute to mental health. Can you say a little more about what policies are missing or what could be changed that would potentially have positive effects here that people may not put in the category of mental health treatment? Yeah. I mean, imagine uh, the postpartum period where your hormones are all over the place. You have a brand new infant you're not getting a lot of sleep. You're trying to manage that child. And you also are going to work right away. And you're, you're trying to do it all and, and certainly um, should not be expected to. In the United States, we do not provide adequate support to individuals in the postpartum period that supports bonding, 
that supports breastfeeding, that supports health and well-being, recognizing that individuals are not getting enough sleep and their hormones are all over the place and we just really need uh, to, to provide that support. So when we think about the Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993, uh, we do know that 60% of workers qualify for the program, but most people cannot afford to forego their income. And so they go back to work right away and are not given the space to heal and bond and take care of themselves um, during that, that period. And, and that has an economic effect. You, we, we see that um, over and over again um, in terms of um, missed days of work, um, challenges with breastfeeding, challenges with um, adjustments to uh, parenthood, um, development. Um, it, it has a, an economic um, burden um, that that carries forward, not just in that postpartum period, but but beyond. So you described that wonderfully for the postpartum period. As you noted at the outset, uh, perinatal includes a period of pregnancy as well. Are there public policies we should be thinking about to improve broader well-being in that period? Yeah, it, and I think it goes back to a lot of the stigma and bias. And, and returning back to the interview that I recently did with a Medicaid enrollee, she was experiencing some challenges at, at work. Um, she had a full, she has a full-time job and she needed to take time off to go to her prenatal visits. And her employer was unwilling to give her that time off. She also happens to be high risk. Um, this was her fourth pregnancy. She had had um, previous C-sections. She also had other um, health uh, complications that were, were creating a more high-risk pregnancy, but was finding it difficult to be able to take off a couple of hours in the middle of the day to be able to go to the visit. And as she said, you know, I, I need to do these prenatal visits so that I can have a healthy pregnancy, birth, and postpartum period so that I can continue to work um, and have a, a positive experience. But simply just was not getting support um, from her employer. So I think there's there's a lot of awareness that, that needs to be elevated around what are the needs of pregnant individuals, supporting them in accessing prenatal care, which often occurs during the typical nine to five. Um, if you're a Medicaid enrollee, you may not be employed by um, an employer that provides sick leave. You may not have an employer that is set up for taking a few hours off. If your job is at a fast food place, um, they're not really set up to give you three hours to drive to your appointment, have your appointment, the blood work, the ultrasound, and then return back to work. And, and so it, we need a fundamental shift at, the, at how we handle the workforce in this space. So as we come to a close, I want to ask you, uh, you were the advisor for this issue. We published some great research, but at heart, you are a researcher. What are some of the key questions that we need to answer to make progress in this area? Not just the policy changes, but the research questions, the data gaps. What's missing that's preventing us uh, from doing a better job here other than the public policy shifts? 
Wow, that's a really hard question because fundamentally in perinatal health generally, I feel like we have sufficient evidence to inform policy changes. The challenge has been that we're not making the policy changes. We're not prioritizing this topic. However, if you're going to push me on coming up with areas for further research, um, we really need to expand the research base around patient-reported outcomes, um, allowing their voice, their preferences, their needs, uh, their expectations to be elevated as part of our understanding of what is quality care. We need to elevate the voice of Black, Brown, and Indigenous people whose birth outcomes, um, we see the highest rates of disparities compared to white individuals. We need to find out from them what is working, what is not working. And when we identify what is not working, elevating that to the policy level and making those changes so that we don't perpetuate the disparities that we're seeing today. Those would be my two top research areas um, that require an investment. And oh, I should add a third, quality measures. We need more quality measures in this space. Uh, so investing in quality measures so that we understand the extent of the barriers and the disparities and the impact of interventions is greatly needed. Well, I'm glad I did push you because uh, you came up with a nice list there. Uh, it's been great having you in this role as theme advisor and a pleasure to get to talk to you today on a Health Podacy. Uh, Jennifer Moore, Dr. Moore, thank you for being my guest. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a Health Podacy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>